In the world of political podcasts, there are experts, there are pundits, and then there's Tom Powell. Happy Friday, and welcome to another episode of the Second Half Podcast with Tom Powell. Remember, remember, if you're listening to this, that means you made it through another week, and margaritas are in order. And now your host, Tom Powell. All right, welcome back in, everybody. As the man in the intro said, this is the Second Half Podcast, and I'm Tom Powell. Now, the man in the intro also said that this was Friday, and that means that you made it through another week, but as you can tell, you were hearing this on Saturday because I had recording software issues all day yesterday. Yesterday was just a bad fucking day all the way around anyway, uh, and with the recording issues, uh, recording software issues, I did not have a chance to make the podcast, so it's coming to you a day late. Having said that, it's still coming to you better late than never, I guess, right? So, welcome to the Second Half Podcast. As I said, I'm Tom Powell, and this is the part of the show where I would tell you a reason, give you a reason why you should go get margaritas. Now, yesterday, when I was supposed to record this podcast, the reason was because it was National Pizza Day. And who doesn't love pizza? But it's Saturday. It's no longer National Pizza Day. Hopefully, you got yourself some margaritas yesterday. Anyway, even in the absence of me telling you to go get margaritas, so I I don't know why you should go drink it tonight. It's Saturday. Tomorrow's the Super Bowl. Just go fucking tie one on. Try to forget that you have responsibilities. Try to forget that uh, you got problems in the world and just have a drink, you know? Uh, before we get into the news of the week, a reminder, as always, to swing by my website, oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. There you're going to find almost anything you want to know about me, including a link to uh, my other podcast, which is called Off Topic with Tom Powell, where I interview people about their lives. Uh, got some really great guests already uh, uh, up there on, on episodes and some really great gre- uh, guests still to come. So go check that one out. That one's available only on Patreon. You're going to find a link on my website on where you can buy my first two books. I have two self-published books available in paperback and ebook formats. You're going to find a link to my store. You're going to find my Wednesday blog articles. I, do a, I try to do a, a new blog piece every Wednesday. You're going to find links on where you can follow me on all of the various social media sites, links to other podcasts and articles I've appeared in, links on how to contact me, and more. Once again, that can all be found at oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. Now, as always, during the football season, I begin with a football segment. Uh, this should be the second-to-last football segment that uh, we have because the Super Bowl is this weekend. So then next week I'll do a Super Bowl recap, and there won't be any football until August when the season starts again. <clears throat> uh, make sure you stay to the end of the podcast because I'm going to talk to you briefly about something that's coming up that isn't 
finalized yet, but I'm working very hard to get it finalized. Just I'll talk about that at the end. Anyway, as I said, this weekend is the Super Bowl. I have picked the Chiefs to win, but I wouldn't be surprised if either team wins. Uh, I picked the Chiefs to win, but I'm kind of wanting San Francisco to win, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. But there's news on the Hall of Fame front, as this year's class of Hall of Fame inductees has been selected. And of the list of people that made it, there are three that I would like to spotlight. Dwight Freeney of the Indianapolis Colts, Devin Hester of the Chicago Bears, and Steve McMichael of the Chicago Bears. First of all, Dwight Freeney, phenomenal defensive player, absolutely a Hall of Famer. I'm glad to see him get in. I'm a little disappointed that Reggie Wayne from uh, the Indianapolis Colts has not yet made the cut. I think he is definitely a Hall of Famer, but congratulations to to Dwight Freeney. Steve McMichael. Steve McMichael was a defensive line player on the 1985 Chicago Bears Super Bowl team. He was an integral part of that defense. He is definitely a Hall of Famer, and I am very, very, very glad that they got this in before Steve passed. If you don't know, Steve has been suffering from a disease that is that is just ravaging his body, and, and he deserved to see this. As much as I dislike the Bears, he deserved to see this while he was still alive. So I'm glad that the, uh, the Hall of Fame got this one right. And then there's Devin Hester of the Chicago Bears. And while I really, 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 really do not like the Chicago Bears, I can recognize greatness when I see it. And Devin Hester is the single greatest return man in the history of the NFL. Period. Full stop. He is, without a question of a doubt, a Hall of Famer. Nobody ever did it better than Devin Hester. At all. Ever. As a matter of fact, the Chicago Bears had two uh, players that were the greatest ever at their position, in my opinion. Walter Payton was the greatest running back to ever play the game, and Devin Hester was the greatest return man to ever play the game. And that is a deserving honor. So congratulations to all the Hall of Fame inductees, but specifically congratulations to Dwight Freeney, Devin Hester, and Steve Mongo McMichael. Now on to uh, non-football news, and I typically talk about politics here, but I do need to talk about personal news for a moment, if I could, please, because since we last spoke, we've lost one of our our pets. Renee and I have uh, had seven animals, five cats, two dogs. Uh, The dogs were a yellow lab named Clyde and a black uh, lab named Bonnie. And Bonnie is no longer with us. Uh, last Thursday, so not this, just this one that we just passed, but the Thursday the week before, she was fine. Everything was A-OK. She woke up Friday and was not feeling herself. You could definitely tell. Lethargic. Not eating. Drinking a ton of water. Just having trouble walking handling stairs so we kind of monitor monitored her and and then made the decision we need to get her into the vet so we got into our vet i think it was 5 45 friday night and uh the vet looked at her said here's what i think is going on i think there's something upsetting her stomach and she's trying to get that out of her system 
and they think we need to get her on some medications. And they gave us three different medications, an anti-nausea, a, a steroid, and uh, an antibiotic. They said, let's bring her back in next week. Let's see how she does over the weekend. If she gets worse, obviously call the emergency vet, but let's cross our fingers that this is going to get the job done. And then uh, we woke up Saturday morning and a week ago today, and uh, she was actually worse. I didn't notice it at first. My wife did. She goes, don't you think she's worse? I go, I don't know. I think she's, she's about the same. But as the morning progressed, I could tell that my wife was 100% accurate, that she was definitely worse than she was the day before. She was having a hard time. She couldn't even walk up the, the stairs of the deck at that point in time, which is definitely not like her. And so we made the decision to take her to the emergency vet. And after about an hour of, of checking her out, the, the doc came in to tell us that she was critical. Her temperature that she was running, her fever that she was running, was actually going up. They ran blood tests and they could not find any platelets in her, so her body was not producing blood. They thought she was bleeding out internally somewhere. They believed it to be cancerous that was aggressive, and there was another count in her blood that they were monitoring, and it was it was uh, uh, high, and they were trying to get it to come down, and so they were actively giving her medication to bring it down, and it was actively going up during that process. So the vet said, here's an aggressive treatment plan. Uh, it was about $9,000, and they said, that is just to get us to the point where we can try and figure out what's going on with her. But we highly doubt that she's going to have any quality of life if she lives at all. And so the extraordinarily difficult decision was made to end her suffering and put her down. She was seven years old. And it is just another in a long line of shit things that have happened over the course of the last 13 months. It started with a new manager being placed, uh, put in place at my wife's company, which caused her. A lot of consternation for her at work. A lot of consternation for her at work. Um, we've had an entire year of the trucking company hemorrhaging money, which means we as individuals have been hemorrhaging money to financially keep the trucking company afloat while trying to find more work somewhere. Then, of course, there was the, the major event of the last year, which was the unexpected passing of my sister-in-law at the age of 44 back in May. Followed immediately by my wife changing jobs to go from a bad situation to an absolutely horrendous situation, which still goes on to this day. So, 
we're still in that shithole situation. Uh, on to, you know, here in the last month, we've had one cat develop crystals and has begun to urinate blood. So that cat has been placed on a medicated food diet for the rest of her life, which is ridiculously much more money than the other food. And since we've got five cats and it's next to impossible to keep all the cats' food separate, now all of the cats are on this more expensive medicated uh, uh, food for the foreseeable future. And then, of course, the passing of Bonnie. It has been... It has been an absolutely brutal 13 months. A absolutely brutal. And I don't know how much more we can take. I'm being, I'm being as honest and as transparent as I possibly can with all of you people. There is absolutely zero aspect of my life that brings me joy right now. Zero. We are wheels up for Jamaica at the end of the month, and I am petrified that it's going to be my wife and I arguing just in a different country. I am petrified that we can't right this ship. I am petrified that this is all going to continue to happen, that we're not going to find work for the trucking company, and we're just going to lose thousands of dollars again this year like we did last year. I am petrified that we're not going to be able to find my wife new employment opportunities to get her out of where she's at. I am, I am petrified about a lot of things. Life has sucked for over a year, and it is not showing any signs right now of getting any better. So, I'm not in a very good mental headspace right now, guys. I just am not. I used to enjoy life. I really did. And there isn't a lot to enjoy right now. Sorry. Just trying to be honest. Just trying to uh, not pretend anymore. I'm sick and fucking tired of pretending like I'm happy. <sighs> so, that's the bit of personal news that I had to share with you guys before we get into the actual news of the week. Rest in peace, Bonnie. You will be missed. <clears throat> Alright, <clears throat> on to the actual news. The reason why you guys show up here. A, a mother of a school shooter has been convicted in a groundbreaking case. I'm going to read to you now from BBC. Jennifer Crumbly, 45, is the first U.S. parent convicted of manslaughter over a mass shooting carried out by their child. 
Prosecutors accused her of being negligent in allowing her son to have a gun and ignoring warning signs. <clears throat> her husband, James, is facing a separate trial on the same charges. He has pleaded not guilty. Their son, now 17, is serving life in prison for killing four classmates at Oxford High School in Michigan on November 30, 2021. Seven people were also injured in the shooting. The judge, speaking to jurors, said it was probably the hardest thing you've ever done. Hold on a second. Got to evacuate the cavities, so to speak. My apologies if that was up in your ear. Miss Crumbly appeared emotionless and stared straight down as the verdict was read in Oakland County Court on Tuesday. She was charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter, each carrying a maximum, sen- a maximum sentence of 15 years. Some relatives of those killed in the shooting expressed relief over the verdict. The question at the heart of the trial was whether the mother could, e- could have foreseen and prevented the deadly crime. Miss Crumbly and her husband James bought the gun their son used just days before the shooting. They were charged by police within days of the killings. Police had to search for the pair and found them in an industrial building in Detroit following a tip from the public. For more than two years, they have been kept in a county jail, unable to make bail. Initially, the parents were supposed to be tried together, but in November sought separate trials. James Crumbly is scheduled to go on trial in March. At her trial, prosecutors presented evidence that Ethan Crumbly had wanted mental health help and complained of hallucinations, but said his parents did not get him treatment. Ms. Crumbly said on the stand that she did not think her son had mental health problems. On the morning of the shooting, the parents cut short a school meeting about a disturbing drawing their son had made to go to work and declined to take the then 15-year-old home. School officials sent him back to class without checking his backpack, which contained a gun. Just hours later, uh, hours later he killed Hannah St. Juliana, 14, Mir, 16, and Madison Baldwin and Justin Schilling, both 17. I don't fear that this is going to open the floodgates to parents being charged in a run-of-the-mill case if there is such a thing, said Frank Vandervoort, a University of Michigan clinical professor of law. I think the facts of this case are so unique and sort of extreme, he went on to say. Prosecutors attempted to make the same case during the two-week trial, alleging Ms. Crumbly ignored her son's pleas for help, despite expressing concern about him in private messages. They showed messages between Ms. Crumbly and a man she had an affair with, in which she said, before attending the school meeting on the day of the shooting, that she was afraid her son would do something dumb. When she took the stand in her own defense at her trial, Ms. Crumbly sought to put the blame on her husband for the gun purchased for the son. She told jurors that her husband bought their son, uh, brought their son to a gun store the day after Thanksgiving to buy him a handgun as a gift. She said she didn't feel comfortable being responsible for securing the gun and left James Crumbly to manage it. At the end of the day, folks... This is the right decision, in my opinion. I, I don't know if you guys remember this news story, but this is after this sh- the school shooting. The parents drained their son's bank account. I don't know, he had like 1500 bucks in there or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the number was. And then went on the run. 
They couldn't find him. This was the right call. These parents clearly were culpable in the actions of their son. And they did nothing to help their son. It only did things to help aid in his killing of his students. Ignoring the warning signs, not getting him the treatment, uh, knowing that he had a problem, but, uh, but turning a blind eye, and then also buying him a gun. They were culpable in the killing of those people, and, and those kids in, the, in that school, and this is the right decision, this is the right verdict, and the father should be found guilty in, in, in his trial in March as well. And I think that this should set a precedence for parents out there to pay attention to what the fuck their kids are doing. Something that I, myself, have not always been stellar at doing. I, myself, have not always been stellar at paying attention to everything my kids do. So I think we all need to look at this case, all of us who are parents. We need to look at this case, and we need to understand that we are responsible for the small human beings that we brought into the world. We are responsible for making sure they are raised properly and that they get the care and treatment that they need for anything that they need care and treatment for. And if not the parents, then who? If not the people who are in charge of making sure that this young man is on the right path, is being cared for, is being treated properly, then who else is responsible? You're going to put it on the kid himself at 15? That's not right either. So now, because of these parents' negligence, an entire family, three lives, along with the lives of everybody that he shot, and, and and the lives of the families of everybody that he shot, all of these people touched because of the negligence of two parents. It doesn't need to be that way, folks. And I think that this this trial, this case, sends a strong message for the future. And I agree with it. you got to pay attention to our kids a little bit more often, you know what I mean? All right, on to politics. Uh, Biden won South Carolina by a landslide. I'm going to read to you now from CNBC. President Joe Biden won a landslide victory in South Carolina's Democratic primary Saturday. It's a week ago today. Uh, where voters sent a clear message that they are ready for Biden to pivot to the November election. As of uh, 12 a.m. Eastern Time Sunday, Biden had won 96.2% of the ballots cast with 97% of the total votes tallied. The other two Democrats on the ballot, House Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota and self-help author and 2020 Democratic nominee or candidate uh, Marianne Williamson, each won around 2% of the ballots. The win injects fresh momentum into Biden's re-election campaign and it offers a compelling rebuttal of the narrative that Democratic voters are ambivalent or worse about their uh, party's standard bearer. Quote, 
In 2020, it was the voters of South Carolina who proved the pundits wrong, breathed life into our campaign, and set us on the path for winning the presidency, Biden said in a statement following Saturday's results. Now in 2024, the people of South Carolina have spoken again, and I have no doubt that you will ha- that you have set us on a path to winning the presidency again and making Donald Trump a loser again. Biden will be awarded all 55 of the state's Democratic delegates, NBC News projects, as neither Williamson nor Phillips broke the 15% threshold for being awarded any delegates. Biden's overwhelming margin of victory left no question about who Democratic voters want to be on the ballot in November. But it came amid reports of lower-than-expected turnout, potentially a sign of weakened enthusiasm for Biden among Democrats. In 2020, approximately 16% of the state's 3.3 million registered voters cast ballots in the Democratic primary. On Saturday, that number dropped to roughly 4% of voters. In particular, polls have shown Biden's support lagging among black voters, a core Democratic Party block that was key to his 2020 win. Black voters account for a majority of the Democratic electorate in South Carolina, so his victory there Saturday could help to ease some of those concerns. Biden's campaign has also been under pressure to show momentum, a real challenge this year given the Democrats' official primary season kicked off late. In Iowa, the Democratic Party decided not to cast any ballots at their caucuses, denying Biden the chance to win there. In New Hampshire, Biden's name was not on the formal ballot, but he won the contest as a write-in candidate with 64% of the votes. Uh, Republicans will vote in their party primary on February 24th, where former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will attempt to pull off an upset in her home state against former President Donald Trump. And let me show you why that is not going to happen, folks. Because Nikki Haley lost in Nevada to nobody. That's right, she lost to nobody. I'm going to read to you now from U.S. News. Nikki Haley lost to nobody in the Nevada Republican presidential primary Tuesday night, literally. In an embarrassing showing in a primary that had no delegate prize anyway, the former South Carolina governor placed second to a quirky option Nevada offers in both primary and general elections called none of these candidates. The no-name, no-face choice, who made no campaign appearances and conducted no advertising, had 62% of the vote Tuesday, with 86% of the votes counted in the Silver State. Haley, hoping to be the one waiting in the wings if former President Donald Trump's campaign implodes, won just 32% of the vote. Now let me just make sure you guys understand what I'm saying here. On the ballot, in Nevada, Trump's name wasn't there. Nikki Haley's name was there. There was also a choice called None of These Candidates. 62% of Nevada Republican voters voted for none of these candidates, while 32% of Nevada Republican primary voters voted for Nikki Haley. She lost to fucking nobody. Nobody. That is a brutal blow to her campaign. And she's going to lose South Carolina. I don't know if that means she's going to get out of the race at that point in time or not, because she seems to be hanging around waiting, as the the, the article said, for Donald Trump's campaign to implode. Which, I've got news for you folks, it's not going to. 
Is he going to be found guilty of some of these crimes that he's being tried for? Yes. Is he going to be found culpable and have to pay millions of dollars? Yes. Is he going to be a convicted felon before the Republican prime, uh, Republican National Convention? Yes. Does that mean his campaign is going to implode? No. Because the Republicans want him no matter what. No matter what. They want him on the ticket. Doesn't matter if he's been... Uh, uh, found liable of uh, sexual assault and rape. Doesn't matter if he's been ordered to pay uh, tens of millions of dollars for said uh, uh, for uh, defaming said victim of sexual abuse and rape. It doesn't matter if he winds up being a convicted felon who can't even vote for himself in the general election. They are still going to vote for Trump. And here's the the problem that the Republican Party has: they have no plan B. They have no plan B. There is nobody else that they're willing to turn to and go, hey, listen, man, this guy's a convicted felon. We need to get him off the ballot. We need to put so-and-so on the ballot if we have any chance of winning. So we are going to go into the November uh, general election this year, the presidential election, with a Republican and Democratic nominee. It's going to be an incumbent Democratic president, Joe Biden, who is flawed himself. Make no mistake about it. And the Republican nominee, who was once the president of the United States, has lost the election once, has lost the the popular vote two times, and will be a convicted felon before that election happens. And they are going to march in the battle with him, prouder than shit, that that is their their candidate. And they're probably going to lose that election as a result of it. But that, that's where we're headed, folks. I mean, make no mistake about it. That is where we are headed. A Trump v. Biden matchup, unless something dramatic happens with either one of these two candidates. That's where we're headed. Which means we have a chance to put our country right again, put our country straight again in 2028. It's just a cold, hard reality, folks. Time to embrace that reality. Time to grasp it. Another reality that is insane to even say is that we currently have an Oklahoma lawmaker who wants to criminalize watching porn. Yes, you heard that right. He wants to criminalize watching porn. I'm going to read to you now from Rolling Stone. Dusty Devers is a fundamentalist preacher. He's also a state senator. And he insists he doesn't see any firewalls between the two roles as he crusades to outlaw porn and what he decries as the abortion holocaust and abolish no-fault divorce in Oklahoma. He argues that the sole purpose of government is to promote what is good in accordance with the will of God. That's a direct quote, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to read that again. He believes the sole purpose of government is to quote, Promote what is good in accordance with the will of God. End quote. Elected in a special election in December, Devers represents the town of Elgin in Oklahoma's rural southwest, where he grew up and serves as the pastor of a Baptist church. The 47-year-old politician's views are extreme, even for Christian nationalists. Surveying American society, Devers does not see a religious sphere and a secular sphere. He, only, he sees only Christian and Satanic 
quote, either you're coming under the rule of God, your creator, or you're going to come under the rule of the serpent, he said during a January podcast. In Deaver's view, civil society, apart from the influence of overt Christian doctrine, is not a neutral middle ground, but rather the realm of the devil, or what he calls, quote, a serpentine theocracy. Unlike many Christian nationalists who seek to ghostwrite legislation or covertly sway candidates, Deavers is operating in the open. He holds a position of direct political power and he is able to shape the GOP agenda in Oklahoma and craft legislation in the Sooner State. He represents the bleeding edge of a far-right Christian movement that seeks to put the force of law behind its fundamentalist theology and woe be to any non-believers. With close-cropped hair, a close-cropped hair, a salt-and-peppered beer, uh, beard, and tailored jackets, Devers doesn't look the part of a fire breather. Often donning clear acetate glasses, he gives elder millennial vibes. But when Devers opens his mouth, he invariably presents a jarring black-and-white view of the role of government, which he believes exists to protect innocent people and to punish and terrorize evildoers. And once again, that is a direct quote. To, quote, protect innocent people and to punish and terrorize evildoers. This vengeful uh, worldview is already evident in the legislation Devers has introduced. The first bill on his docket classifies, quote, any abortion as homicide and, quote, allows for the prosecution of the mother of the unborn child. Devers has also filed a bill providing uh, an eye-for-an-eye punishment for anyone bearing false witness. It would subject the accuser, found to have, quote, willfully made a false report, to the criminal punishment that would have accompanied a guilty conviction for the alleged offenses. Another Devers bill would eliminate no-fault divorce, meaning marriages could only be dissolved for causes like abuse. While campaigning, Devers told a religious podcast that he also favors, quote, public shaming for those who are at fault in divorce, end quote. In a related essay, he calls, uh, he calls this an important act of justice for both the transgressor and the transgressed. The state senator has only been on the job for a few weeks, but he's already grabbed national notice for another effort to legislate his morals by criminalizing porn. Deaver's anti-smut bill would subject porn creators and even porn viewers to felony prison sentences of up to 20 years. The bill would create a bounty system similar to what Texas instituted in its infamous abortion bill that would allow those who rat out their horny neighbors to collect civil penalties of up to $10,000. Deaver's bill defines pornography with uncanny attention to detail as falling in one of ten categories, including, quote, sexual intercourse, which is normal or perverted, anal sodomy, excretion in the context of sexual content, as well as lewd exhibition of uncovered genitalia, buttocks, or, if such person is female, the breasts. The bill would also criminalize sexting, except between spouses. In the far-right context, Christian nationalism is an ideology that holds falsely that America was founded as a Christian nation, 
that Christians are entitled to a place of privilege in society, and that fundamentalist believers are called to impose their morality on others through legislation. Devers embodies a threat that experts believe Christian nationalism poses to democracy by literally demonizing his opponents and casting compromise as moral corruption. This dude wants to lock you up for 20 years if you watch someone get fucked on film. Among the many other insane things that he's got out there. Ladies and gentlemen, I guarantee you this gentleman has porn on his hard drive. I guarantee it. I will bet anything this gentleman has porn on his hard drive. This is the kind of guy you're going to come to find out at some point in time was captured on film on a beach in Malaysia with a 14-year-old boy. You mark my fucking words. It never fails with these fucking people. You want to lock people in Oklahoma up for 20 years for watching porn? Man, you are in need of a fucking blowjob. You need to lighten the fuck up. This is insanity. And people like this have absolutely no place in government they have if you want to believe this shit you are more than entitled to believe this shit if you want to raise your kids to believe this shit you are more than entitled to raise your kids to believe this shit what you are not entitled to do is impose this shit on the rest of us 20 fucking years for watching porn jesus fucking christ man how come this guy is not putting fucking Catholic priests in prison for what they've done? Oh, that's right, because they're religious. How come this guy is not putting pastors in prison for fucking around on their wives and, and having affairs? Oh, that's right, because they're religious. I guarantee fucking to you this guy's got porn on his hard drive. Guarantee it. You want to lock somebody up for 20 years for, for watching porn? That is a prime reason why you should not be living in a red state, folks. Move to Illinois, folks. I don't give a shit if you watch porn here. Wow, that is fucking nuts. Speaking of nuts... I don't know if you've been paying attention or not, but the uh, House of Representatives, controlled by Republicans, has been trying to impeach everybody in the Joe Biden cabinet. And their latest attempt was to uh, impeach uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. I'm going to read to you now from AP News. In a dramatic setback, House Republicans failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, forced to shelve a high-profile priority for now after a few GOP lawmakers refused to go along with the party's plan. The stunning roll call Tuesday fell just a single vote short of impeaching Mayorkas, stalling the Republicans' drive to punish the Biden administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. With Democrats united against the charges, the Republicans needed almost every vote from their slim majority to approve the articles of impeachment. A noisy, rowdy scene erupted on the House floor as the vote was uh, tied for several tense minutes. 
215 to 215. Several Republican lawmakers, led by the impeachment's chief sponsor, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, surrounded one of the holdouts, Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher, who refused to change his vote. Frustrated, said Republican Mark Green of Tennessee, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, but we'll, se- we'll see it back again. House Speaker Mike Johnson's spokesperson, Raj Shah, said they fully intended to reconsider the articles of impeachment against Mayorkas when we have the votes for passage. Let's just pause right there. When we have the votes for passage. See, therein lies the difference between people like Mike Johnson and Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi didn't let shit come to the floor for a vote unless she knew she had the fucking votes. Something people like Mike Johnson don't fucking grasp. Next steps are uncertain. In the end, three Republicans opposed the impeachment and a fourth Republican switched his vote so the measure could be revisited. The final tally was 214 to 216. The outcome was another dismal result for House Republicans who have reportedly been been unable to use their majority power to accomplish political goals or even to keep up with the basics of governing. Johnson, who could afford only a few defections from his ranks, had said earlier he had personally spoken to Gallagher and another GOP holdout acknowledging the heavy, heavy vote as he sought their support. It's an extreme measure, said Johnson from Louisiana, but extreme times call for extreme measures. Not since 1876 has a cabinet secretary faced impeachment charges, and it's the first time a sitting secretary is being impeached. 148 years ago, Secretary of War William Belknap resigned just before the vote. Yeah, I would say it's extreme, Mike. The impeachment charges against Mayorkas come as the border security is fast becoming a top political issue in the 2024 election, a particularly potent line of attack being leveled against Joe Biden by Republicans, led by the party's frontrunner for the presidential nomination, uh, Donald Trump. And as I explained to you last week on the podcast, and as I explained to you this past week in in a blog post, or this last week in a blog post, the reason why you're hearing about the border, the reason why this is such a hot button issue for the Republicans right now is because they can't run on the economy. The economy is booming. The economy is doing great. The economy is up on all levels. The stock market has reached record highs. Unemployment's at 60-year lows. Wages are up. Inflation is down. They can't run on the pocketbook issues, so they got to scare you with brown people. And so what are they doing? They are attempting to impeach a cabinet member for the first time since 1876 for something that has happened in this country for, you guys think that no illegal immigrants crossed the border under Donald Trump? You guys are fucking nuts. Fucking nuts. But this is what the Republicans are about. Do they have a bill to keep the government open? No. Do they have a bill to help the American people? No. Are they, are they working on bringing jobs back? No. Are they working on making those tax cuts from the 2017 Trump tax cuts for the working class families that were only temporary? Are they working on making those tax cuts permanent? No. They're working on impeaching the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. They're investigating the president's son because he's got a laptop with some pictures of him fucking some women and doing some blow. That's what the Republican Party is under Trumpism. And that's why the Republican Party keeps losing.
That's why the Republican Party got their asses kicked in the 2018 midterms. That's why the Republican Party's had their asses historically handed to them in the 2020 presidential elections election. And that's why the Republican Party failed to pull off the massive red wave in 2022, losing ground in the Senate and only getting a few seat majority in the House. And it's why they're going to lose in 2024, because they will not govern for the American people. They just won't do it. I don't know why they refuse to govern for the American people. You're going to have to ask them. But they refuse to govern for the American people. And so here we are. We're watching the Republicans fail to do anything to help the constituents that put them there. So much so that far-right-wing Republican Chip Roy of Texas stood on the House floor and yelled at his own side of the uh, of the political aisle, his own party, and asked them to give him one thing that they said that they were going to do that they actually accomplished in the year that they've held the House of Representatives so that he could go back to his district and actually run on an accomplishment because he can't find one. This Congress has been the second least productive Congress in the history of the country. They've done nothing for the American people. They did manage to squeeze in uh, a, a, what is it called? It's not an official binding vote, but a resolution, if you will, to, to deem that Donald Trump did not commit an insurrection. They managed to, they managed to find time for that. They managed to all get together and get on the same page to say, yeah, we believe Donald Trump didn't commit, uh, didn't participate in an insurrection. But they can't pass a bill to help you. They can't pass a bill to help your pocketbook. They can't pass a bill to bring jobs back to the country. Not to worry. Biden's already handling all of that. But that, that's my point, is these are all of the things that they ran on heading into 2024, or 2020, right? Or 2022, my apologies. Right? The economy sucks. We need jobs. We need this. We need we need higher wages. We need better jobs. We need to bring manufacturing back. All of the shit that they ran on, they've done nothing about. Hell, there is a border bill that gives Republicans damn near everything on their wish list. And the Republicans are killing it because it would give Joe Biden a win in a, in a, in a in an election year. The, the border bill that you guys have been hearing so much about does not grant amnesty to anybody that's here illegal, does not give a path to citizenship to dreamers. It, 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 it's a Republican wish list that Democrats are handing to the Republicans in the Senate in order to be able to continue to fund an ally in Europe who's actively being attacked by Putin. And because it would be deemed a win for Joe Biden, they're killing their own bill. That's where we're at in 2024, folks. That's where we're at. Someplace else we are at in 2024 is we are arguing as to whether or not presidents are untouchable kings in this country. Donald Trump and his lawyers have been arguing that he cannot be held criminally liable for any of the actions that he did while he was in the White House because he has presidential immunity. But here's a newsflash. He doesn't have presidential immunity. And because it's going to piss off all of the Trumpers who are listening to this podcast, I'm going to read this one from CNN. Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for alleged crimes he committed during his presidency to reverse the 2020 election results, a federal appeals court said on Tuesday. 
The ruling is a major blow to Trump's key defense thus far in the federal election subversion case brought against him by special counsel Jack Smith. The former president had argued that the conduct Smith charged him over was part of his official duties as president and therefore shield him from criminal liability. Quote, For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become Citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution, the court wrote. The ruling from the three-judge panel was unanimous. The three-judge panel who issued the ruling Tuesday includes two judges, J. Michelle Childs and Florence Pan, who were appointed by Joe Biden, and one, Karen LaCraft Henderson, who was appointed by George H.W. Bush. In a statement Tuesday, Trump spokesman Stephen Chung said to, to expect an appeal. Quote, President Trump respectfully disagree, disagrees with the D.C. Circuit uh, decision and will appeal it in order to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution, Chung said. The court is giving Trump until February 12th to file an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court, which would stop the clock while his attorneys craft a more substantive appeal on the merits. If he is successful with that, the criminal trial will not resume until after the high court decides what to do with his request for a pause. If proven, the court wrote, Trump's efforts to usurp the 2020 presidential election would be an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. It would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested in the constitutional duty to take care of the laws uh, be faithfully executed, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity, they wrote. The judges flatly rejected Trump's claim that his criminal indictment would have a chilling effect on future presidents. Quote, Moreover, past presidents have understood themselves to be subject to impeachment and criminal liability, at least under certain circumstances, so the possibility of chilling executive action is already in effect, the opinion says. Trump's attorneys had argued that if future executives believed they could own, they could be indicted for their official acts, quote-unquote, as president, they would be more hesitant to act within their role. The panel wrote, quote, The risks of chilling presidential action on permitting meritless, harassing prosecutions are unlikely, unsupported by history, and too remote and shadowy to shape the course of justice. We therefore conclude that functional policy considerations rooted in the structure of our government do not immunize former presidents from federal criminal prosecution. Trump faces four counts from Smith's election subversion charges, including conspiring to defraud the United States and to obstruct an official proceeding. The former president has pleaded not guilty. The White House and President Joe Biden's re-election campaign declined to comment. Trump has argued that he is working to, quote, ensure election integrity as part of his official capacity as president, and therefore he is immune from criminal prosecution for trying to overturn the election results. His lawyer has also asserted that because Trump was acquitted by the Senate during impeachment proceedings, he is protected by double jeopardy and cannot be charged by the Justice Department for the same conduct. That's not what double jeopardy is, and his lawyer is too fucking stupid to understand that. With all due respect. 
The district judge overseeing Trump's criminal case in D.C. rejected Trump's immunity claims in November, writing that being president does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. Trump quickly appealed that decision to the D.C. Circuit, which agreed to expedite its review of the matter. The appeals court found that Trump is not protected from criminal prosecution under the separation of powers clause. Quote, here, former President Trump's actions allegedly violated generally applicable criminal laws, meaning those acts were not properly within the scope of his lawful discretion, they wrote, meaning that existing case law, quote, provide him no structural immunity from the charges in the indictment, end quote. The court said that Trump asked them to find for the first time that a former president is categorically immune from federal criminal prosecution for any act conceivably within the outer perimeter of his executive responsibilities. So, what does all of this mean and where do we go now? Well, it's it's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court where Trump is going to put all of his hopes and dreams into the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court's going to do one of two things. Either they're going to agree to hear the case and they're going to set the precedence by uh, issuing a ruling themselves, or they are going to deny hearing the case and just affirm the lower court's ruling. So let's assume that they hear the case. The Supreme Court, if they decide, sorry, back up, let's assume they don't hear the case. If they say we're not going to hear the case, we're going to affirm the lower court's ruling, then that's it. This D.C. Uh, uh, decision that says that presidents do not have, former presidents do not have criminal immunity is the final word. That's it. He's, he goes on trial. He has no immunity. He can be fine, cl- found criminally uh, liable. If they agree to hear the case, <clears throat> they put themselves into one fucking hell of a box, Right? Because if they don't grant him criminal uh, uh, immunity, if they say, listen, you are not immune, just like the D.C. court says, they're going to face the ire of Trump and his entire fucking base, as well as the Republicans in Congress. If they grant him immunity, then what they are saying is every president has immunity. That means anything that you guys want to try and lock up Obama or Clinton for, can't do it. Because former presidents would have immunity. And anything they would try and do to Joe Biden would also be thrown out the window. Because former presidents would have immunity. It would also mean that the sitting president right now, Joe Biden, could do whatever the fuck he wants and never worry about being criminally prosecuted for it. Trump's lawyers during this case actually argued that a sitting president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate their political opponent and not be held criminally liable for. Which means Trump's lawyers are actually arguing openly in court, actively, right now, that Joe Biden could have Donald Trump killed and there's nothing the law could do about uh, about it. There's no criminal prosecution that the law could bring against Joe Biden. They are literally arguing that the gentleman that they want locked up is immune from being locked up. I mean, that's what they want, right? They want Joe Biden behind bars. You hear it all the time. We need to lock him up. Joe Biden for prison, yada, yada, yada. These dumb fucks, while arguing that Joe Biden should be locked up, are simultaneously arguing that Joe Biden is immune from being locked up. 
It's fucking insanity. A president does not have immunity. We shouldn't even have the bullshit unwritten rule that you cannot charge a sitting president. If a sitting president commits a crime, charge them. I don't give a fuck if they got a D or an R next to their name. Charge them. The laws apply to everybody in this country equally the last time I fucking checked. So now we get a bunch of conservatives on on platforms like Twitter going, well, now every former president is eligible to be tried. Yeah, they always have been. Why the fuck do you think Nixon needed to be pardoned, you dumb fucks? Why the fuck do you think Nixon needed to be pardoned? Because he could be held criminally liable for the shit he did while in office. You ignorant, window-licking, crayon-eating cousin fuckers. Well, now they can all be charged. Yeah, yeah, we've already known that, you idiots. And that's what you are. You're fucking idiots. If you believe that a former president is completely and utterly immune for the rest of his life for anything that he did in office, you are too fucking stupid to be allowed to breed. Literally. Too fucking stupid. You are contaminating our gene pool. We should cut your fucking balls off, rip your fucking ovaries out so that you can no longer contaminate our species. So now we wait and see what the Supreme Court has to say. Are they going to hear the case? Are they just going to affirm the lower court's case? Either way, it puts them in one hell of a bind. I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction that the Supreme Court doesn't hear the case. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if they did hear the case. This can literally go either way. It's a 50-50 flip a coin. I'm going to make a prediction that I don't think they're going to hear the case, that they're going to affirm the lower court's case because they don't want to fucking touch it. I heard my friend Hawk in San Francisco say this for the first time, and I tend to agree with him on this one. I think they're going to affirm the lower court's cases, uh, lower, lower court's decision. They're going to say, yeah, president doesn't have immunity. We're not going to touch it. Fuck you. We got too many things on our plate. Let's get back to the business of, of, of having an election. And Trump's going to go to fucking trial, and he's going to be found guilty, and he'll appeal it. It's not like he's going to go to fucking prison the minute he's found guilty, but... Once he's found guilty, while he's awaiting his appeal, he will not be able to vote in federal elections, which means Trump will most likely not be able to vote for himself in the general election in November of this year. Watch this space. We will have more on this. Now, a tidbit of news before we we wrap this particular week's podcast up. I am working with my travel agent to put together a group trip, probably a cruise out of either Miami or New Orleans, maybe even Texas, we'll see. Eh, Somewhere in that three, four day range. Uh, We're looking for early part of next year, maybe a year from now. And what it would be, it would be like a group rate. We would all go together. I'm going to be looking for, giving you the numbers right now, I'm going to be looking for about 20 people that are willing to go. At 20 people, she says the numbers work to where the rates can come down enough that people can afford to go. And so if you would like to cruise with me and my wife, of course, then that's what I'm working on. A group cruise. So 
I will have more information on that as soon as my travel agent gets back to me with said information. We will put together some kind of a package, hopefully soon, that works for everybody. Hopefully. Um, fingers crossed. This is, like I said, this is not uh, locked in stone just yet. It's something that we're working on. But if you would like to go on a small vacation, one where you don't have to fly out of the country, you just have to get to a domestic port, either uh, somewhere in Florida Louisiana or Texas to be able to get on a cruise ship for a few days with us and that's something that we're working on putting together for you guys I'm uh, I'm working with her on destinations I'm working with her on duration I'm working with her on cruise lines I'm working with her on prices so start saving your pennies and get ready to hear some information on that and let's all go on a cruise together I need, she, she said we're going to need about 20 people that want to go. Let's make it a hell of a lot more than 20 people. Let's blow this one out. Let's, make, let's give them 50, 60 people that want to go on a cruise. So that they want to do this with us again in the future. Okay? All right, folks, that's all I got for you this week. I'm sorry that this one is a day late. But like I said, I had software recording issues. I don't even know if this entire podcast actually recorded, so we're going to see in just a moment when I go to mix it up with my intro and outro. Uh, But that's all I got for you guys this week. Um, Tune in next week for an all-new episode, and just a reminder, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here, folks. Two more episodes before I go on vacation. I'm planning an episode on Friday, February 16th as well as Friday, February 23rd, but then the following week, I am out of town, and there will be no episodes on March 1st, nor on March 8th. The last episode will be on uh, uh, February 23rd, and then the next episode, new, excuse me, next new episode after that will not be until Friday, March 15th. Just making sure everybody's aware of what the schedule looks like. Two more episodes, and then I'm out for two weeks. So, as I wrap up this episode, I tell you, as always, to look forward to next week's all-new episode, and until then, as always, stay grateful.